that caused his cancer cells to grow in an abnormal manner. This approach, known as molecular targeted therapy, was more effective than traditional chemotherapy, which attacks the process of division of all the body's cells, cancerous or not. This targeted therapy was not a silver bullet, but at times it seemed close to one. It allowed his doctors to look at a large number of drugs, common and uncommon, already available or only in development, to see which three or four might work best. Whenever his cancer mutated and repaved around one of these drugs, the doctors had another drug lined up to go next. Although Powell was diligent in overseeing her husband's care, he was the one who made the final decision on each new treatment regimen. A typical example occurred in May 2011, when he held a meeting with George Fisher and other doctors from Stanford, the gene sequencing analyst from the Broad Institute, and his outside consultant, David Agus. They all gathered around a table at a suite in the Four Seasons Hotel in Palo Alto. Powell did not come, but their son Reed did. For three hours, there were presentations from the Stanford and Broad researchers on the new information they had learned about the genetic signatures of his cancer. Jobs was his usual feisty self. At one point, he stopped a Broad Institute analyst who had made the mistake of using PowerPoint slides. Jobs chided him and explained why Apple's Keynote presentation software was better. He even offered to teach him how to use it. By the end of the meeting, Jobs and his team had gone through all of the molecular data, assessed the rationales for each of the potential therapies, and come up with a list of targeted tests to help them better prioritize them. One of his doctors told him that there was hope that his cancer, and others like it, would soon be considered a manageable chronic disease, which could be kept at bay until the patient died of something else. I'm either going to be one of the first to be able to outrun a cancer like this, or I'm going to be one of the last to die from it, Jobs told me right after one of the meetings with his doctors. Either among the first to make it to shore, or the last to get dumped. Visitors When his 2011 medical leave was announced, the situation seemed so dire that Lisa Brennan Jobs got back in touch after more than a year and arranged to fly from New York the following week. Her relationship with her father had been built on layers of resentment. She was understandably scarred by having been pretty much abandoned by him for her first ten years. Making matters worse, she had inherited some of his prickliness, and he felt some of her mother's sense of grievance. I told her many times that I wished I'd been a better dad when she was five, but now she should let things go rather than be angry the rest of her life, he recalled just before Lisa arrived. The visit went well. Jobs was beginning to feel a little better, and he was in a mood to mend fences and express his affection for those around him. At age 32, Lisa was in a serious relationship for one of the first times in her life. Her boyfriend was a struggling young filmmaker from California 
and Jobs went so far as to suggest she move back to Palo Alto if they got married. Look, I don't know how long I am for this world, he told her. The doctors can't really tell me. If you want to see more of me, you're going to have to move out here. Why don't you consider it? Even though Lisa did not move west, Jobs was pleased at how the reconciliation had worked out. I hadn't been sure I wanted her to visit, because I was sick and didn't want other complications, but I'm very glad she came. It helped settle a lot of things in me. Jobs had another visit that month from someone who wanted to repair fences. Google's co-founder, Larry Page, who lived less than three blocks away, had just announced plans to retake the reins of the company from Eric Schmidt. He knew how to flatter Jobs. He asked if he could come by and get tips on how to be a good CEO. Jobs was still furious at Google. My first thought was, fuck you, he recounted. But then I thought about it and realized that everybody helped me when I was young, from Bill Hewlett to the guy down the block who worked for HP. So I called him back and said, sure. Page came over, sat in Jobs' living room, and listened to his ideas on building great products and durable companies. Jobs recalled, We talked a lot about focus and choosing people, how to know who to trust and how to build a team of lieutenants he can count on. I described the blocking and tackling he would have to do to keep the company from getting flabby or being larded with B players. The main thing I stressed was focus. Figure out what Google wants to be when it grows up. It's now all over the map. What are the five products you want to focus on? Get rid of the rest, because they're dragging you down. They're turning you into Microsoft. They're causing you to turn out products that are adequate, but not great. I tried to be as helpful as I could. I will continue to do that with people like Mark Zuckerberg, too. That's how I'm going to spend part of the time I have left. I can help the next generation remember the lineage of great companies here and how to continue the tradition. The Valley has been very supportive of me. I should do my best to repay. The announcement of Jobs' 2011 medical leave prompted others to make a pilgrimage to the house in Palo Alto. Bill Clinton, for example, came by and talked about everything from the Middle East to American politics. But the most poignant visit was from the other tech prodigy born in 1955, the guy who for more than three decades had been Jobs' rival and partner in defining the age of personal computers. Bill Gates had never lost his fascination with Jobs. In the spring of 2011, I was at a dinner with him in Washington, where he had come to discuss his foundation's global health endeavors. He expressed amazement at the success of the iPad, and how Jobs, even while sick, was focusing on ways to improve it. Here I am, merely saving the world from malaria and that sort of thing, and Steve is coming up with amazing new products, he said wistfully. Maybe I should have stayed in that game. He smiled to make sure that I knew he was joking, or at least half-joking. Through their mutual friend, Mike Slade, 
Gates made arrangements to visit Jobs in May. The day before it was supposed to happen, Jobs' assistant called to say he wasn't feeling well enough. But it was rescheduled, and early one afternoon, Gates drove to Jobs' house, walked through the back gate to the open kitchen door, and saw Eve studying at the table. Is Steve around, he asked. Eve pointed him to the living room. They spent more than three hours together, just the two of them, reminiscing. We were like the old guys in the industry looking back, Jobs recalled. He was happier than I've ever seen him, and I kept thinking how healthy he looked. Gates was similarly struck by how Jobs, though scarily gaunt, had more energy than he expected. He was open about his health problems and, at least that day, feeling optimistic. His sequential regimens of targeted drug treatments, he told Gates, were like jumping from one lily pad to another, trying to stay a step ahead of the cancer. Jobs asked some questions about education, and Gates sketched out his vision of what schools in the future would be like, with students watching lectures and video lessons on their own while using the classroom time for discussions and problem-solving. They agreed that computers had, so far, made surprisingly little impact on schools, far less than on other realms of society such as media and medicine and law. For that to change, Gates said, computers and mobile devices would have to focus on delivering more personalized lessons and providing motivational feedback. They also talked a lot about the joys of family, including how lucky they were to have good kids and be married to the right women. We laughed about how fortunate it was that he met Laureen, and she's kept him semi-sane, and I met Melinda, and she's kept me semi-sane, Gates recalled. We also discussed how it's challenging to be one of our children, and how do we mitigate that? It was pretty personal. At one point, Eve, who in the past had been in horse shows with Gates's daughter Jennifer, wandered in from the kitchen, and Gates asked her what jumping routine she liked best. As their hours together drew to a close, Gates complimented Jobs on the incredible stuff he had created and for being able to save Apple in the late 1990s from the bozos who were about to destroy it. He even made an interesting concession. Throughout their careers, they had adhered to competing philosophies on one of the most fundamental of all digital issues. Whether hardware and software should be tightly integrated or more open. I used to believe that the open, horizontal model would prevail, Gates told him, but you proved that the integrated, vertical model could also be great. Jobs responded with his own admission. Your model worked too, he said. They were both right. Each model had worked in the realm of personal computers, where Macintosh coexisted with a variety of Windows machines, and that was likely to be true in the realm of mobile devices as well. But after recounting their discussion, Gates added a caveat. The integrated approach works well when Steve is at the helm, but it doesn't mean it will win many rounds in the future. Jobs similarly felt compelled to add a caveat about Gates after describing their meeting. Of course, 
His fragmented model worked, but it didn't make really great products. It produced crappy products. That was the problem, the big problem, at least over time. That day has come. Jobs had many other ideas and projects that he hoped to develop. He wanted to disrupt the textbook industry and save the spines of spavined students bearing backpacks by creating electronic texts and curriculum material for the iPad. He was also working with Bill Atkinson, his friend from the original Macintosh team, on devising new digital technologies that worked at the pixel level to allow people to take great photographs using their iPhones, even in situations without much light. And he very much wanted to do for television sets what he had done for computers, music players, and phones, make them simple and elegant. I'd like to create an integrated television set that is completely easy to use, he told me. It would be seamlessly synced with all of your devices and with iCloud. No longer would users have to fiddle with complex remotes for DVD players and cable channels. It will have the simplest user interface you could imagine. I finally cracked it. But by July 2011, his cancer had spread to his bones and other parts of his body, and his doctors were having trouble finding targeted drugs that could beat it back. He was in pain, sleeping erratically, had little energy, and stopped going to work. He and Powell had reserved a sailboat for a family cruise scheduled for the end of that month, but those plans were scuttled. He was eating almost no solid food, and he spent most of his days in his bedroom watching television. In August, I got a message that he wanted me to come visit. When I arrived at his house, at mid-morning on a Saturday, he was still asleep so I sat with his wife and kids in the garden, filled with a profusion of yellow roses and various types of daisies, until he sent word that I should come in. I found him curled up on the bed, wearing khaki shorts and a white turtleneck. His legs were shockingly stick-like, but his smile was easy and his mind quick. We better hurry, because I have very little energy, he said. He wanted to show me some of his personal pictures and let me pick a few to use in the book. Because he was too weak to get out of bed, he pointed to various drawers in the room, and I carefully brought him the photographs in each. As I sat on the side of the bed, I held them up, one at a time, so he could see them. Some prompted stories, others merely elicited a grunt or a smile. I had never seen a picture of his father, Paul Jobs, and I was startled when I came across a snapshot of a handsome, hard-scrabble 1950s dad holding a toddler. Yes, that's him, he said. You can use it. He then pointed to a box near the window that contained a picture of his father looking at him lovingly at his wedding. He was a great man, Jobs said quietly. I murmured something along the lines of, He would have been proud of you. Jobs corrected me. He was proud of me. For a while, the pictures seemed to energize him. We discussed what various people from his past, 
ranging from Tina Redsey to Mike Markula to Bill Gates, now thought of him. I recounted what Gates had said after he described his last visit with Jobs, which was that Apple had shown that the integrated approach could work, but only when Steve is at the helm. Jobs thought that was silly. Anyone could make better products that way, not just me, he said. So I asked him to name another company that made great products by insisting on end-to-end integration. He thought for a while, trying to come up with an example. The car companies, he finally said, but then he added, or at least they used to. When our discussion turned to the sorry state of the economy and politics, he offered a few sharp opinions about the lack of strong leadership around the world. I'm disappointed in Obama, he said. He's having trouble leading because he's reluctant to offend people or piss them off. He caught what I was thinking and assented with a little smile. Yes, that's not a problem I ever had. After two hours, he grew quiet, so I got off the bed and started to leave. Wait, he said, as he waved me to sit back down. It took a minute or two for him to regain enough energy to talk. I had a lot of trepidation about this project, he finally said, referring to his decision to cooperate with this book. I was really worried. Why did you do it? I asked. I wanted my kids to know me, he said. I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. Also, when I got sick, I realized other people would write about me if I died, and they wouldn't know anything. They'd get it all wrong. So I wanted to make sure someone heard what I had to say. He had never, in two years, asked anything about what I was putting in the book or what conclusions I had drawn. But now he looked at me and said, I know there will be a lot in your book I won't like. It was more a question than a statement, and when he stared at me for a response, I nodded, smiled, and said I was sure that would be true. That's good, he said. Then it won't seem like an in-house book. I won't read it for a while, because I don't want to get mad. Maybe I'll read it in a year, if I'm still around. By then his eyes were closed and his energy gone, so I quietly took my leave. As his health deteriorated throughout the summer, Jobs slowly began to face the inevitable. He would not be returning to Apple as CEO. So it was time for him to resign. He wrestled with the decision for weeks, discussing it with his wife, Bill Campbell, Johnny Ive, and George Riley. One of the things I wanted to do for Apple was to set an example of how you do a transfer of power right, he told me. He joked about all the rough transitions that had occurred at the company over the past 35 years. It's always been a drama, like a third-world country. Part of my goal has been to make Apple the world's best company, and having an orderly transition is key to that. The best time and place to make the transition, he decided, was at the company's regularly scheduled August 24th board meeting. He was eager to do it in person, rather than merely send in a letter or attend by phone, 
so he had been pushing himself to eat and regain strength. The day before the meeting, he decided he could make it, but he needed the help of a wheelchair. Arrangements were made to have him driven to headquarters and wheeled to the boardroom as secretly as possible. He arrived just before 11 a.m. when the other board members were finishing committee reports and other routine business. Most knew what was about to happen, but instead of going right to the topic on everyone's mind, Tim Cook and Peter Oppenheimer, the chief financial officer, went through the results for the quarter and the projections for the year ahead. Then Jobs said quietly that he had something personal to say. Cook asked if he and the other top managers should leave, and Jobs paused for more than thirty seconds before he decided they should. Once the room was cleared of all but the six outside directors, he began to read aloud from a letter he had dictated and revised over the previous weeks. I have always said if there ever came a day when I could no longer meet my duties and expectations as Apple's CEO, I would be the first to let you know, it began. Unfortunately, that day has come. The letter was simple, direct, and only eight sentences long. In it, he suggested that Cook replace him, and he offered to serve as chairman of the board. I believe Apple's brightest and most innovative days are ahead of it, and I look forward to watching and contributing to its success in a new role. There was a long silence. Al Gore was the first to speak, and he listed Jobs' accomplishments during his tenure. Mickey Drexler added that watching Jobs transform Apple was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in business, and Art Levinson praised Jobs' diligence in ensuring that there was a smooth transition. Campbell said nothing, but there were tears in his eyes as the formal resolutions transferring power were passed. Over lunch, Scott Forstall and Phil Schiller came in to display mock-ups of some products that Apple had in the pipeline. Jobs peppered them with questions and thoughts, especially about what capacities the fourth-generation cellular networks might have and what features needed to be in future phones. At one point, Forstall showed off a voice recognition app. As he feared, Jobs grabbed the phone in the middle of the demo and proceeded to see if he could confuse it. What's the weather in Palo Alto, he asked. The app answered. After a few more questions, Jobs challenged it. Are you a man or a woman? Amazingly, the app answered in its robotic voice. They did not assign me a gender. For a moment, the mood lightened. When the talk turned to tablet computing, some expressed a sense of triumph that HP had suddenly given up the field, unable to compete with the iPad. But Jobs turned somber and declared that it was actually a sad moment. Hewlett and Packard built a great company, and they thought they had left it in good hands, he said, but now it's being dismembered and destroyed. It's tragic. I hope I've left a stronger legacy so that will never happen at Apple. As he prepared to leave, the board members gathered around to give him a hug.
After meeting with his executive team to explain the news, Jobs rode home with George Riley. When they arrived at the house, Powell was in the backyard harvesting honey from her hives with help from Eve. They took off their screen helmets and brought the honeypot to the kitchen where Reed and Aaron had gathered so that they could all celebrate the graceful transition. Jobs took a spoonful of the honey and pronounced it wonderfully sweet. That evening, he stressed to me that his hope was to remain as active as his health allowed. I'm going to work on new products and marketing and the things that I like, he said. But when I asked how it really felt to be relinquishing control of the company he had built, his tone turned wistful and he shifted into the past tense. I've had a very lucky career, a very lucky life, he replied. I've done all that I can do. Chapter 42 Legacy The Brightest Heaven of Invention Firewire His personality was reflected in the products he created, just as the core of Apple's philosophy, from the original Macintosh in 1984 to the iPad a generation later, was the end-to-end -end integration of hardware and software, so too was it the case with Steve Jobs. His passions, perfectionism, demons, desires, artistry, devilry, and obsession for control were interwoven with his approach to business and the innovative products that resulted. The unified field theory that ties together Jobs's personality and products begins with his most salient trait, his intensity. His silences could be as searing as his rants. He had taught himself to stare without blinking. Sometimes this intensity was charming in a geeky way, such as when he was explaining the profundity of Bob Dylan's music or why whatever product he was unveiling at that moment was the most amazing thing that Apple had ever made. At other times, it could be terrifying, such as when he was fulminating about Google or Microsoft ripping off Apple. This intensity encouraged a binary view of the world. Colleagues referred to the hero-slash-shithead dichotomy. You were either one or the other, sometimes on the same day. The same was true of products, ideas, even food. Something was either the best thing ever, or it was shitty, brain-dead inedible. As a result, any perceived flaw could set off a rant. The finish on a piece of metal, the curve of the head of a screw, the shade of blue on a box, the intuitiveness of a navigation screen, he would declare them to completely suck until that moment when he suddenly pronounced them absolutely perfect. He thought of himself as an artist, which he was, and he indulged in the temperament of one. His quest for perfection led to his compulsion for Apple to have end-to-end -end control of every product that it made. He got hives, or worse, when contemplating great Apple software running on another company's crappy hardware, 
and he likewise was allergic to the thought of unapproved apps or content polluting the perfection of an Apple device. This ability to integrate hardware and software and content into one unified system enabled him to impose simplicity. The astronomer Johannes Kepler declared that nature loves simplicity and unity. So did Steve Jobs. This instinct for integrated systems put him squarely on one side of the most fundamental divide in the digital world, open versus closed. The hacker ethos handed down from the homebrew computer club favored the open approach, in which there was little centralized control and people were free to modify hardware and software, share code, write to open standards, shun proprietary systems, and have content and apps that were compatible with a variety of devices and operating systems. The young Wozniak was in that camp. The Apple II he designed was easily opened and sported plenty of slots and ports that people could jack into as they pleased. With the Macintosh, Jobs became a founding father of the other camp. The Macintosh would be like an appliance, with the hardware and software tightly woven together and closed to modifications. The hacker ethos would be sacrificed in order to create a seamless and simple user experience. This led Jobs to decree that the Macintosh operating system would not be available for any other company's hardware. Microsoft pursued the opposite strategy, allowing its Windows operating system to be promiscuously licensed. That did not produce the most elegant computers, but it did lead to Microsoft's dominating the world of operating systems. After Apple's market share shrank to less than 5%, Microsoft's approach was declared the winner in the personal computer realm. In the longer run, however, there proved to be some advantages to Jobs's model. Even with a small market share, Apple was able to maintain a huge profit margin while other computer makers were commoditized. In 2010, for example, Apple had just 7% of the revenue in the personal computer market but it grabbed 35% of the operating profit. More significantly, in the early 2000s, Jobs' insistence on end-to-end -end integration gave Apple an advantage in developing a digital hub strategy which allowed your desktop computer to link seamlessly with a variety of portable devices. The iPod, for example, was part of a closed and tightly integrated system. To use it, you had to use Apple's iTunes software and download content from its iTunes store. The result was that the iPod, like the iPhone and iPad that followed, was an elegant delight in contrast to the kludgy rival products that did not offer a seamless end-to-end -end experience. The strategy worked. In May 2000, Apple's market value was one-twentieth that of Microsoft. In May 2010, Apple surpassed Microsoft as the world's most valuable technology company, and by September 2011, it was worth 
70% more than Microsoft. In the first quarter of 2011, the market for Windows PCs shrank by 1%, while the market for Macs grew 28%. By then, the battle had begun anew in the world of mobile devices. Google took the more open approach, and it made its Android operating system available for use by any maker of tablets or cell phones. By 2011, its share of the mobile market matched Apple's. The drawback of Android's openness was the fragmentation that resulted. Various handset and tablet makers modified Android into dozens of variants and flavors, making it hard for apps to remain consistent or make full use of its features. There were merits to both approaches. Some people wanted the freedom to use more open systems and have more choices of hardware. Others clearly preferred Apple's tight integration and control, which led to products that had simpler interfaces, longer battery life, greater user-friendliness, and easier handling of content. The downside of Jobs' approach was that his desire to delight the user led him to resist empowering the user. Among the most thoughtful proponents of an open environment is Jonathan Zittrain of Harvard. He begins his book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It, with the scene of Jobs introducing the iPhone, and he warns of the consequences of replacing personal computers with sterile appliances tethered to a network of control. Even more fervent is Cory Doctorow, who wrote a manifesto called Why I Won't Buy an iPad for Boing Boing. There's a lot of thoughtfulness and smarts that went into the design, but there's also a palpable contempt for the owner, he wrote. Buying an iPad for your kids isn't a means of jump-starting the realization that the world is yours to take apart and reassemble. It's a way of telling your offspring that even changing the batteries is something you have to leave to the professionals. For Jobs, belief in an integrated approach was a matter of righteousness. We do things not because we are control freaks, he explained. We do them because we want to make great products, because we care about the user, and because we like to take responsibility for the entire experience rather than turn out the crap that other people make. He also believed he was doing people a service. They're busy doing whatever they do best, and they want us to do what we do best. Their lives are crowded. They have other things to do than think about how to integrate their computers and devices. This approach sometimes went against Apple's short-term business interests, but in a world filled with junky devices, inscrutable error messages, and annoying interfaces, it led to astonishing products marked by beguiling user experiences. Using an Apple product could be as sublime as walking in one of the Zen gardens of Kyoto that Jobs loved, and neither experience was created by worshipping at the altar of openness or by letting a thousand flowers bloom. Sometimes it's nice to be in the hands of a control freak. Jobs' intensity was also evident in his ability to focus. 
he would set priorities, aim his laser attention on them, and filter out distractions. If something engaged him, the user interface for the original Macintosh, the design of the iPod and iPhone, getting music companies into the iTunes store, he was relentless. But if he did not want to deal with something, a legal annoyance, a business issue, his cancer diagnosis, a family tug, he would resolutely ignore it. That focus allowed him to say no. He got Apple back on track by cutting all except a few core products. He made devices simpler by eliminating buttons, software simpler by eliminating features, and interfaces simpler by eliminating options. He attributed his ability to focus and his love of simplicity to his Zen training. It honed his appreciation for intuition, showed him how to filter out anything that was distracting or unnecessary, and nurtured in him an aesthetic based on minimalism. Unfortunately, his Zen training never quite produced in him a Zen-like calm or inner serenity, and that, too, is part of his legacy. He was often tightly coiled and impatient, traits he made no effort to hide. Most people have a regulator between their mind and mouth that modulates their brutish sentiments and spikiest impulses, not jobs. He made a point of being brutally honest. My job is to say when something sucks rather than sugarcoat it, he said. This made him charismatic and inspiring, yet also, to use the technical term, an asshole at times. Andy Hertzfeld once told me, The one question I'd truly love Steve to answer is, Why are you sometimes so mean? Even his family members wondered whether he simply lacked the filter that restrains people from venting their wounding thoughts or willfully bypassed it. Jobs claimed it was the former. This is who I am, and you can't expect me to be someone I'm not, he replied when I asked him the question. But I think he actually could have controlled himself if he had wanted. When he hurt people, it was not because he was lacking in emotional awareness. Quite the contrary. He could size people up, understand their inner thoughts, and know how to relate to them, cajole them, or hurt them at will. The nasty edge to his personality was not necessary. It hindered him more than it helped him, but it did at times serve a purpose. Polite and velvety leaders who take care to avoid bruising others are generally not as effective at forcing change. Dozens of the colleagues whom Jobs most abused ended their litany of horror stories by saying that he got them to do things they never dreamed possible. And he created a corporation crammed with A-players. The saga of Steve Jobs is the Silicon Valley creation myth writ large. Launching a startup in his parents' garage, and building it into the world's most valuable company. He didn't invent many things outright, but he was a master at putting together ideas, art, and technology in ways that invented the future. 
he designed the Mac after appreciating the power of graphical interfaces in a way that Xerox was unable to do, and he created the iPod after grasping the joy of having a thousand songs in your pocket in a way that Sony, which had all the assets and heritage, never could accomplish. Some leaders push innovations by being good at the big picture. Others do so by mastering details. Jobs did both relentlessly. As a result, he launched a series of products over three decades that transformed whole industries. The Apple II, which took Wozniak's circuit board and turned it into the first personal computer that was not just for hobbyists. The Macintosh, which begat the home computer revolution and popularized graphical user interfaces. Toy Story and other Pixar blockbusters, which opened up the miracle of digital imagination. Apple Stores, which reinvented the role of a store in defining a brand. The iPod, which changed the way we consume music. The iTunes Store, which saved the music industry. The iPhone, which turned mobile phones into music, photography, video, email, and web devices. The App Store, which spawned a new content creation industry. The iPad, which launched tablet computing and offered a platform for digital newspapers, magazines, books, and videos. iCloud, which demoted the computer from its central role in managing our content and let all of our devices sync seamlessly. And Apple itself, which Jobs considered his greatest creation, a place where imagination was nurtured, applied, and executed in ways so creative that it became the most valuable company on earth. Was he smart? No, not exceptionally. Instead, he was a genius. His imaginative leaps were instinctive, unexpected, and at times magical. He was indeed an example of what the mathematician Mark Kotz called a magician genius, someone whose insights come out of the blue and require intuition more than mere mental processing power. Like a pathfinder, he could absorb information, sniff the winds, and sense what lay ahead. Steve Jobs thus became the business executive of our era, who is most certain to be remembered a century from now. History will place him in the Pantheon right next to Edison and Ford. More than anyone else of his time, he made products that were completely innovative, combining the power of poetry and processors. With a ferocity that could make working with him as unsettling as it was inspiring, he also built the world's most creative company, and he was able to infuse into its DNA the design sensibilities, perfectionism, and imagination that make it likely to be, even decades from now, the company that thrives best at the intersection of artistry and technology. And one more thing. Biographers are supposed to have the last word, but this is a biography of Steve Jobs, 
even though he did not impose his legendary desire for control on this project, I suspect that I would not be conveying the right feel for him, the way he asserted himself in any situation, if I just shuffled him onto history's stage without letting him have some last words. Over the course of our conversations, there were many times when he reflected on what he hoped his legacy would be. Here are those thoughts in his own words. My passion has been to build an enduring company where people were motivated to make great products. Everything else was secondary. Sure, it was great to make a profit because that was what allowed you to make great products. But the products, not the profits, were the motivation. Scully flipped these priorities to where the goal was to make money. It's a subtle difference, but it ends up meaning everything. The people you hire, who gets promoted, what you discuss in meetings. Some people say, give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. Edwin Land of Polaroid talked about the intersection of the humanities and science. I like that intersection. There's something magical about that place. There are a lot of people innovating, and that's not the main distinction of my career. The reason Apple resonates with people is that there's a deep current of humanity in our innovation. I think great artists and great engineers are similar in that they both have a desire to express themselves. In fact, some of the best people working on the original Mac were poets and musicians on the side. In the 70s, computers became a way for people to express their creativity. Great artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo were also great at science. Michelangelo knew a lot about how to quarry stone, not just how to be a sculptor. People pay us to integrate things for them because they don't have the time to think about this stuff 24-7. If you have an extreme passion for producing great products, it pushes you to be integrated, to connect your hardware and your software and content management. You want to break new ground, so you have to do it yourself. If you want to allow your products to be open to other hardware or software, you have to give up some of your vision. At different times in the past, there were companies that exemplified Silicon Valley. It was Hewlett-Packard for a long time. Then in the semiconductor era, it was Fairchild and Intel. I think that it was Apple for a while, and then that faded. And then today, I think it's Apple and Google, and a little more so Apple. I think Apple has stood the test of time. It's been around for a while, but it's still at the cutting edge of what's going on. It's easy to throw stones at Microsoft. They've clearly fallen from their dominance. They've become mostly irrelevant.
and yet I appreciate what they did and how hard it was. They were very good at the business side of things. They were never as ambitious product-wise as they should have been. Bill likes to portray himself as a man of the product, but he's really not. He's a business person. Winning business was more important than making great products. He ended up the wealthiest guy around, and if that was his goal, then he achieved it. But it's never been my goal, and I wonder, in the end, if it was his goal. I admire him for the company he built. It's impressive, and I enjoyed working with him. He's bright and actually has a good sense of humor. But Microsoft never had the humanities and liberal arts in its DNA. Even when they saw the Mac, they couldn't copy it well. They totally didn't get it. I have my own theory about why decline happens at companies like IBM or Microsoft. The company does a great job, innovates, and becomes a monopoly or close to it in some field, and then the quality of the product becomes less important. The company starts valuing the great salesmen because they're the ones who can move the needle on revenues, not the product engineers and designers. So the salespeople end up running the company. John Akers at IBM was a smart, eloquent, fantastic salesperson, but he didn't know anything about product. The same thing happened at Xerox. When the sales guys run the company, the product guys don't matter so much, and a lot of them just turn off. It happened at Apple when Scully came in, which was my fault, and it happened when Balmer took over at Microsoft. Apple was lucky, and it rebounded, but I don't think anything will change at Microsoft as long as Balmer is running it. I hate it when people call themselves entrepreneurs, when what they're really trying to do is launch a startup and then sell or go public so they can cash in and move on. They're unwilling to do the work it takes to build a real company which is the hardest work in business. That's how you really make a contribution and add to the legacy of those who went before. You build a company that will still stand for something a generation or two from now. That's what Walt Disney did, and Hewlett and Packard, and the people who built Intel. They created a company to last, not just to make money. That's what I want Apple to be. I don't think I run roughshod over people, but if something sucks, I tell people to their face. It's my job to be honest. I know what I'm talking about, and I usually turn out to be right. That's the culture I tried to create. We are brutally honest with each other, and anyone can tell me they think I'm full of shit, and I can tell them the same. And we've had some rip-roaring arguments where we are yelling at each other, and it's some of the best times I've ever had. I feel totally comfortable saying, Ron, that store looks like shit in front of everyone else. Or I might say, God, we really fucked up the engineering on this in front of the person that's responsible. That's the Annie for being in the room. You've got to be able to be super honest. Maybe there's a better way a gentleman's club where we all wear ties and speak in this Brahmin language and velvet code words, but I don't know that way. 
because I am middle class from California. I was hard on people sometimes, probably harder than I needed to be. I remember the time when Reed was six years old, coming home, and I had just fired somebody that day, and I imagined what it was like for that person to tell his family and his young son that he had lost his job. It was hard, but somebody's got to do it. I figured that it was always my job to make sure that the team was excellent, and if I didn't do it, nobody was going to do it. You always have to keep pushing to innovate. Dylan could have sung protest songs forever and probably made a lot of money, but he didn't. He had to move on, and when he did, by going electric in 1965, he alienated a lot of people. His 1966 Europe tour was his greatest. He would come on and do a set of acoustic guitar, and the audiences loved him. Then he brought out what became the band, and they would all do an electric set, and the audience sometimes booed. There was one point where he was about to sing Like a Rolling Stone, and someone from the audience yells, Judas! And Dylan then says, Play it fucking loud! And they did. The Beatles were the same way. They kept evolving, moving, refining their art. That's what I've always tried to do, keep moving. Otherwise, as Dylan says, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. What drove me? I think most creative people want to express appreciation for being able to take advantage of the work that's been done by others before us. I didn't invent the language or mathematics I use. I make little of my own food none of my own clothes. Everything I do depends on other members of our species and the shoulders that we stand on. And a lot of us want to contribute something back to our species and to add something to the flow. It's about trying to express something in the only way that most of us know how, because we can't write Bob Dylan songs or Tom Stoppard plays. We try to use the talents we do have to express our deep feelings, to show our appreciation of all the contributions that came before us, and to add something to that flow. That's what has driven me. Coda One sunny afternoon, when he wasn't feeling well, Job sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on death. He talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience, and maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. He fell silent for a very long time. But on the other hand, Perhaps it's like an on-off switch.
he said. Click, and you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. Steve Jobs was written by Walter Isaacson and read by Dylan Baker. It was recorded by Erica Weintraub at Simon & Schuster Audio in New York. Editing and post-production by Frog Pond Productions. Terry Hogan was the mix engineer. The associate producers were Jan Werner and Louisa Solomon. Steve Jaws was produced and directed by Tara Thomas. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Steve Jobs is available in hardcover from Simon & Schuster. Also available from Simon & Schuster Audio, Einstein, His Life and Universe, Benjamin Franklin, An American Life, and American Sketches, Great Leaders, Creative Thinkers, and Heroes of a Hurricane.